You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I am joined by my co-host, Max Linsky, and my other co-host, Aaron Lammer, both from Longform. Hey. What's up, guys? Aaron's back. I Apparently an episode happened while I was gone without my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a good time in New Orleans. It was worth it. You know, the funny thing, I listened to that episode and I did not notice that I was not on the intro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure amazing. other people did. Yeah. I, I, I know I know I've got my fans out there shout outs to the Aaron Lammer fans listening <laughs> um who do we have on the show today uh this week I talked to Michael Paternitti uh who is the author of two books both of which I love and so many great magazine stories that uh we could not possibly talk about them I realized by the end we had not talked about stories that I really like. Yeah, the guy's been he, nominated for a National Magazine Award like eight times. Yeah, he's one of those guys where it's just like impossible to get to the whole list. Is that really famous story he did, uh, like eating Jack Hooker's cow? Is that like his first story, his first big story? Do you know what story I'm talking about? It's about like competing motels, I believe, in Kansas City, like the really, really low-rent motels. That might be his first story. He did a story about Thurman Munson. Yeah, yeah. That, that's from the same vin- same vintage. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah, I think he he might even talk about the Kansas City thing a little bit. I could the, be wrong about it being Kansas City. It's somewhere in that region. <laughs> somewhere in the general, like, uh, Midwest. Yeah. It's a very mem- memorable story. Anyway, he's fantastic. He uh, He's really interesting. What's his new to. book called? About, his new book is called The Telling Room. The Telling Room. Uh, it's, it's about, about cheese, f- right? Yeah, it's about cheese, but so much more. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just out in paperback, or it's about to be out in paperback. Right on. Uh, do we have any sponsors this week? We do. We have a couple. Uh, there is a new book from Atavis Books. You guys know Atavis Books? Atavis Books, full disclosure, not the same thing as the Atavist that Evan is part of. A different a different venture that's interlinked and uh, software uh, in common. Yeah. Correct. And this, this book, it is by Hari Kanzu, and it is uh, called Twice Upon a Time. It is built upon that software. It is not available anywhere but on atavist.com, and that's because it has all of this crazy multimedia stuff uh, music, Sounds of New York. It's sort of from uh, bygone New York. And uh, you should check it out, atavist.com. That reminds me, when I was in New Orleans, I went to the World War II Museum where they have a 4D movie. Wow. They, like attack you? Yeah. yeah when, it's when like, someone comes I out can't really explain. No, like, like you can see like snow kind of falling like between you and the screen. 
Tom Hanks narrates it. It's pretty great. I recommend the World War II Museum, New Orleans, Louisiana. Sold. Um, as always, our most honored sponsor is Tiny Letter. Uh, they are a simple way to get an email newsletter off the ground from the people at MailChimp who know newsletters like no one else. Thank you, Tiny Letter. And we got one more thing. Uh, we mentioned this last week. We're, uh, we have a survey going. It's at www.podsurvey.com slash longform. It's, uh, it helps us get some information to our advertisers. It's, of course, voluntary. We will not share your email address with anyone. We won't try to sell you anything. Uh, you, can, you will be entered for a $100 Amazon gift card if you do decide to take it. So uh, help us out if you have the time and inclination. Yeah, to give an idea, this is just like when we go out and talk to advertisers, this helps us talk about how great our audience is and how you're the kind of people who buy books and technology and all that kind of great stuff, and that helps keep the show afloat. Another way to help keep the show afloat is to leave a review at iTunes. Please do. We really appreciate them. We read them. Uh, Here is Evan and Michael Patterny. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming on. You're in town for the... Well, you're not in town for the publication of your paperback. You were in town, and it coincided with the yeah, publication. Just of the yeah, just randomly. Yeah, but this is not this is not a publicity event that we're doing here. This is not no. A, this although is we could hardcore. We could, this is hardcore talk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, I was trying to think about where to start because Driving Mr. Albert was a book that I really was obsessed with when it came out, and actually dating back to I was a Harper subscriber and reading i think it was like a folio was it yeah. a folio piece yep. when it came out yeah. originally and a lot of what i was interested in that book was i was probably like 25 years old the book came out and it was uh, a book about an adventure that you had but it also was about you there was a sort of memoir quality to it where you were in your life at that point right uh, yeah. and then i was reading the telling room and i had this very similar experience of I was expecting a book. I had read about what you know the book was about. It's about this cheese, and we'll go into what it's about. But it it struck me really strongly that that it's actually a book about uh, also about writing yeah. and a book about oh, yeah. a writer in a certain part of the career, and that it's also a memoir. And I would even go further and say they felt like one book to me. Huh. Wow, in a way, interesting. I'm 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 curious. I mean, they they're definitely of two parts of. One life, well, yeah, and one is the setup for the family to come. And like, I think the the one, the one thing about driving Mr. Albert is that it's a it's a young book, and it's in the background. There's this tension about whether or not myself and Sarah are going to be together, and there's sort of this this quixotic journey across the country to come to some epiphany, maybe about it, yeah. um, about the rest of your life, and it just hap- you know, so happens that. Einstein's brain is in the trunk of the car, so it changes everything. Everything gets very cosmic and um, sort of speedy, and there's a lot of velocity, which still feels like that part of my life. You know, where I felt like sort of uh, shot out into the world in all sorts of different directions, and constantly questioning questioning my own path. You know, what, what direction should I be really going in here? Yeah. And that's a lot of that in in both books. That sort of reflection is is part of the book. It's, yeah. I mean, I would assume that happens when you're writing a book anyway. But it's really layered in to the books. Actually, let's let's before we go 
back and talk about driving style. Let's talk about the telling rooms. It's the, it's the more recent of them. So first, maybe just set up if someone hasn't read the book yet, which they should. What you would say this book is about? I'm curious how you. I'm sure you have a well honed. No, uh, I don't. Really? <laughs> I feel. I feel like I, I do a very messy job of describing should this we, book. Should we read like the copy on the back uh, cover? We should call. We'll call Andy Ward and have him <laughs> tell you what the book is about. Um, no, it's you know it's a book that started as as this this um, very simple kind of story about a man. Uh, living in a tiny Spanish village who was making cheese. And this cheese sort of somehow became world famous. Um, it was from an old family recipe. And and um, I had encountered this cheese in a deli in Michigan just after grad school. I took a job at Singerman's Deli in Grad school, which you, you refer to as storytelling school. Yeah. The, yeah. I was there for an the MFA in fiction. So I did sort of two years and then stuck around for a third um, just trying to delay real life for for you know twelve more months, but yeah, there was a they had a little newsletter, and I thought my job was to proofread it. And there was a little story about this cheese and this sort of uh, made by this little man, or it turned out to be a big man in a tiny village. And um, and when I landed up there many years later, just to abbreviate the story, um, I walked in uh, to the middle of a murder plot, I guess. He was, the cheesemaker was sort of plotting to murder his best friend because his friend had stolen this cheese. In his telling. In his telling, yeah. And uh, and when you say, I landed there, I mean, that that's part of what to me is was so intriguing about this book. I mean, beyond, it's a great plot. I mean, this character is, is you even describe at one point as sort of like the character you've been flying around the world looking for. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Every time he opened his mouth, he was the, like the perfect soundbite or he's he was so lyrical and everything that he described from wh- whether it was just describing the harvest or whether he was describing uh his own desire for revenge you know he just had this um way of putting things that was very castilian very body um but then very poetic and uh i was you know i was enthralled immediately when you showed up, it seemed like you actually didn't really know what it was you were chasing. I mean, did you feel that in the moment? Or when you went back to write it, did you sort of write it more that way, even though when you arrived, you had in your mind, like, this guy could be a book if he's... Or, or would you really go into it saying, I just want to meet this guy. I just want to know what this is about. Yeah. I was on assignment for Esquire. Mm-hmm. So I was in I was in Barcelona writing about Ferran Adria. And there was just that one off day. And I had from all those years earlier at the at the deli, I had ripped out this little entry about this cheese because I just thought it was so quixotic, really. And um Yeah, I guess it was the beginning of a story or some sort of fairy tale, but I didn't go there thinking this is gonna be something. I just went there thinking, wouldn't it be cool? to see this guy and go to this place uh, sort of at the top of the world, up on the Meseta in mid-central Spain um, and Castile, and just for one second, for one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon in August, um, just feel what it's like to be in that village and then to try this cheese maybe. Yeah. And then, and then when we got there, he took us into his telling room, which was this cave built into a hill where people gather and they eat and they drink and they tell their stories. And he proceeded to tell this crazy story about how his cheese went from being uh, consumed by royalty 
um, in England and Spain and Fidel Castro eating his cheese to um, this this theft of his family heirloom and then uh, his subsequent grief and desire to kill um, his best friend Julian, who he claimed had stolen mm-hmm. his cheese. It just seemed crazy. I, I mean, you know, half of me was trying to keep a straight face. Yeah. But the other half of me realized really quickly, just because of the sheer force of this guy, Ambrosio, that um, this was like he lost a child. You know, it was intense. And his emotions were huge. I mean, he, yeah. he like wept the first time he told the story. And so, and he's like this 260 pound hulking macho Castilian man. So I was definitely like, what we, when we left that, that night, it was like two in the morning. And I turned to my buddy Carlos, who was translating. We were driving out and down the hill from from uh, Guzman, the village, mm-hmm. and I said to Carlos, "What the hell was that? Like, what? I don't even get what just happened there." Because he had gone on for eight hours telling the story, and I thought, you know, really the way he told it was such passion, but he was so emphatic that it, it felt like he was going to kill Julian, his friend, that night. You know, mm-hmm. so it was really unsettling in some <laughs> some way. And of course, we never had the cheese because he didn't really have. Any cheese yeah, around? The cheese is gone. Yeah, it was for the gone. Most part. Yeah. So no, I think when we went there, it just was on a lark, and then driving out of there that night, I was like, "Wow, that's kind of weird." But it wasn't just—it wasn't thinking ma- that's a magazine piece or that's a book. In fact, I wasn't really thinking that hard about it. Later, I started thinking about how can I go back there, and I went back sort of on my own dime a number of times just to get a sense of the place, and I just sort of fell in love with it. People there. We're living these completely authentic lives, and it just completely sort of ensorcelled me. There's a sort of nonfiction, this is not going to make any sense, but like nonfiction magical realism quality to this village, like that it yeah. could have emerged out of, you know, a novel, just the characters, the types of people that are there. Yeah, the I, I mean, I love that. And I think when you do some of this work, I'm even just in the magazine work that I've done, I'm always looking for those characters. You know, I'm looking for... I don't know, years ago I did a story about a giant uh, who was living in the Ukraine mm-hmm. and he was living in a, in a little hovel um, with his tiny mom. <laughs> and uh, that felt like it was completely out of some sort of magical realist novel. And yeah. um, there are a lot of stories like that that, you know, I when I see them, I'm, I really uh, am driven to do them if somebody will say yes. In this case, I mean, you, you pursued this for a while without that sense of this is going to be X, Y, or Z, you know, this is definitely going to be a book or definitely be a magazine story. And it becomes a, a part of the book. You're, you're wrestling with what is this story going to be? And yeah. am I too far into it? And am I too close to, to, to the main character? And you even mentioned all the, the sort of drafts you wrote and, and lobbing sort of drafts back and forth with an editor. Like the process of writing is really in there, but were there versions of it? of the book where that wasn't in there, where it was actually just a straight story and you weren't in it at all? Yeah, I had begun to um, think that that might be the only way to do it, to take a very distant sort of omniscient third person. And then I started thinking maybe I'd become a third person character. Like I would just be the Americano. Mm-hmm. There were maybe a hundred pages written like that, where it was really uh, third person-y and maybe more than a hundred. Um, and I thought, in the delusion of writing that this was exactly what it should be and I finally lit upon a way to like solve the book. Um, and then it just sat for a little while and, and eventually I was told by my editor and by my own better self 
that it really sucked, you know, like I'd really done something not very good. And, um, you know, I realized that first person is standing in for the reader. Um, and you're trying to, you're trying to build something. Um, if you're trying to make a very specific story universal, it felt really important to announce your intentions and Mm -hmm. announce who you were and not hide behind something that started to feel devicey, which is what that did. This sort of shift into the third person, it became a little more comic. Um, I was just playing to parts of the story that actually in the end were less interesting than, than the honest struggle uh, to get it down and to also negotiate this really intense relationship. Um, and I think you know that occurs in any story, any yeah. magazine story I've ever done where I've gotten close to somebody. You know, we talk about this all the time. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're cast into this position where you're, you have to betray them at some level by writing a piece in the end and telling your version of maybe their story. So, and I find myself really conflicted still to this day about that. And so that's all in the book. I yeah. just figured I might as well put it in there. Yeah, it's it's something that uh, I feel people talk about a lot, even on this podcast. We've had a lot of people talk about that. But it's rare that you actually see it woven into the book itself where you're struggling with, you don't want to talk to the friend who betrayed him. You're putting it off. and But you, then you're also recognizing, like, that's not good for this book. That's not the book. Yeah, yeah, because I want I think you, you want to believe in the legend or the myth. And the myth was so powerful of this man standing up against um, the vicissitudes of nature, um, hand milking the sheep to make this, this cheese that turned out to be magical when people ate it. They were reminded of their mothers and their kitchens from, you know, decades before. And so it was this cheese of memory and he cast it like that. Um, And it stood for purity and love and passion. And it was, um, he was sort of this bohemian artiste and this poet of the fields. And I really wanted to preserve that. Like I needed to believe that. So at some point, you know, when it when it finally turned, and this took some years actually, um, mm-hmm. and I, I sort of woke up to the fact that I was here to write a book and to be a journalist or try to be one. Because um, we should say for people who haven't read it that you moved there with your family yeah. for <laughs> yeah, for like we were there for seven or eight months, yeah. eight months I think. And so my wife Sarah, who's who does this work, she's a writer, um, has really thinks about all these issues, and she's re- she so she was the one who at some point kind of snapped me out of it. And just said, you know, you need to ask some of these questions and you need to be less enthralled to Ambrosio and this version of, of, of events. You need to, like, step around it. There is a counter story, as there always is, and there's mm-hmm. a counter truth. And, you know, in order to finish this thing, you're going to have to actually deal with that. You're going to give up whatever it is that holds you in place, whatever myth it is you want to continue to believe. Um, and it's funny because I think when, like, a lot of times when you got on magazine assignments, um, I try to go out open yeah. and a little bit blank. Not filling your head with all the writing about something. Yeah, yeah. and not having not having a really strong point of view. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be inspired maybe by somebody or think um, that it could be a story that might look like this. Mm-hmm. It might have something. Uh, might, oh, this might be a fable. Like I could tell this as a fable, but... Um, but beyond that, I'm, I'm tr- I try to hold back on constructing some version or some myth in my own mind before, you know, you've had that chance to engage. But with Ambrosio, I mean, I had the chance to engage, but I'd already he was already a myth before I started to consider 
writing about him. And so I, I, I was working backwards against that. I was sort of, there was a countercurrent that kept pushing me back um, because I kept asking myself, like, isn't there anything in your life that you do just for yourself? You know, why does this experience have to be a book? Why do I have to betray him when I'm in love with his philosophy and his way of life? And I've been taken into this Castilian world that I would never have otherwise uh, been able to, um, you know, somehow wheedle my way into. So, you know, it's like you're sitting there at two in the morning in the telling room in the cave and they're singing hotas or they're telling dirty jokes or whatever they would normally do if, even if you were back in New York City or Portland, Maine. But in this case, I just happened to be there and I was, I sort of was hearing um, all these stories that were hundreds of years old being retold. And I just felt like I was really connected to this deep well of history and, you know, human happening and emotion and joy and hate and, you know, violence. It was really uh, intense. And it, in some ways, I just didn't want to give that up, that feeling of being connected to it. Because the minute you disconnect to it and you ask for the other story or the other side of the story, um, you've created a tension or, or um you know, you've driven a wedge into um, this other relationship. Yeah, and, you're a different kind of actor at that, yeah. at that point. Yeah, I mean, so then you're you not do, a friend. Yeah, right. And I mistook, I think I mistook um, my friendship with Ambrosio for a uh, real friendship, even as I knew I had to write about him. And I still think of him as, you know, I, I just saw him in London a couple months ago, and it was the same as it's always been, you know, just big hug and like immediately he starts talking at me. <laughs> so it was great. But, um, but you know, I think he's really, he's been really unsure about what this book says about him and sort of what his legacy looks like inside of this book. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to uh, interrupt Evan and Mike for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's Atavis Books. They've got their second title out. It's called Twice Upon a Time. It's by the acclaimed author Hari Kunzru. Uh, and here's what it's about. It is about when Hari Kunzru moved to New York City and he sort of took as his like imaginary guide uh, this blind composer named Moondog. Uh, and if you don't know who Moondog is, uh, you should really buy this book because the book is this like multi-layered, multimedia masterpiece of a thing. It's got all of this sound, rare music from Moondog, sort of sounds of New York, and it kind of conjures up this bygone era of the city. It's really quite beautiful. It's only $3.99. It's at atavis.com. Uh, it's available also in their app for the iPhone and the iPad. Uh, so go check it out. And thanks very much to them for sponsoring us. Let's get back to Mike and Evan. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned your your wife saying to you, you know, you need to pull yourself out of just being, you know, enmeshed with this this man and everything that he's all about. But what ultimately answered the question when you said you sort of thought to yourself, well, why can't something just be for me? And why does it have to become this other thing? Did you ultimately say it has to become this other thing because I have a book contract to fulfill or because that's actually my job? Or, you know, what what was the sort of answer to that question well i'm i mean i think it was probably there were probably several answers and some of them had to do with deadlines and yeah. contracts signed but even then you know i think I, I was completely willing to give it all back the advance and i mean i would have been willing if i felt like i didn't have something to say i just always felt like i had a lot to say about it and it's just this huge puzzle to figure out how to tell someone's story and memorialize a way of living 
and to remember a way of life in a dying village um, that in in some ways is really um, what a storyteller does anyway. You know, mm-hmm. what, we, what we're trying to do when we build these stories is, um, you know, we're memorializing on one level, but we're also uh, leaving a record. It's like the little painting on the cave wall, whatever it is. It's just some trace that, that you pass through here and recorded an experience that has, um, I guess, some meaning to uh, everyone. And so that to me became the puzzle. It was just, how can I tell the story in a way and solve it that is honest? Um, and, you know, I just felt like if I didn't finish this, then what was I doing, you know, as a storyteller, trying to do as a writer? Um, if I didn't have the guts to do it or I didn't, I couldn't see my way through to the end of it somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the story was complicated too because it, it, was, it was meant to be this sort of kaleidoscopic collection of stories within stories. And um, I just wanted to make sure that that would work on some level for people because there's the, the sort of this Castilian way of storytelling is uh, constantly interruptive. Uh-huh. So, you know, you've got like, you've got footnotes, yeah. you've got as- asides, you've got, you know, stories within stories and and you could literally listen to a story being told for sometimes years before they get to the point, you know? <laughs> so with this story, it took years before I got down to the bottom of it. Yeah. You know, I read some, some reviews, which is not something I don't know if you, do you do that? Do you read, do you read the reviews? I read some of them. <laughs> yeah. And then, then sometimes I just stop or, yeah, no, I, I read them because I think I want to understand how it's being read. Yeah. You know, I want to understand what I can do better or, you know, where it might work or fail for somebody. You know, I think that's, it's just important to be open to it. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I go really high when I get a good one or go too terribly low when I get a bad one. You know, I mean, it might, it might last for 24 hours where you just are like, oh, okay, I feel good about that or I feel horrible about that. But then it's just like, you know, you got to get back to work. Yeah. I mean, the reviews for The Telling Room are, are fantastic, but there was sort of like some people seemed more into the sort of maximal approach and some people didn't like it or they, or yeah. they disparaged it as a max, like an overly maximal approach. Right. Whereas I th- it seemed like what you were doing was actually the storytelling style that you were writing about. It's, it's nested. Oh my God. Yeah. It's book. so huge. Yeah. I mean, if you so, sit in the telling room in, in uh, Guzman, uh, you know, right now it's whatever, it's 11 o'clock over there and um, they've got, they're grilling lamb. They've got fresh wine and Ambrosio Molinas is telling some completely over-the-top story full of all these digressions. And if you were to try to capture that, you would, you know, hopefully walk away with a book that was maximalist and, and emphatic and um, captured that spirit because that's that's what it is there. You know, I think if if I was writing about people who didn't tell stories or didn't talk much like I did in my first book, you know, then that's a different story. You have to just modulate the the keys and w- what you're doing with it. You just have to think differently about it. Yeah. There's so much about writing in this to the extent that I believe this is the only thing I've ever read that explicitly reference, references freelancers paying quarterly taxes. Like there's a footnote that says like, <laughs> I paid my quarterly taxes, which any freelancer would be like, yeah, I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. But there's a mention too of a book that you almost pursued a book about John Walker Lynn. Yeah. And that's also written about. And right. I'm, I'm sure you must have reflected on that differently over the process of, you know, doing this book, like mm-hmm. whether you should or should not have pursued that. Yeah. And you could have by now 
I have a book out that's a completely different type of book. Oh, totally, yeah. So in 9-11, we were in Spain, and um, when we got into this little tiny village, we checked into the hotel. It was Sarah and myself, and we had uh, one boy at the time, Leo. And um, we checked into the hotel, and the guy at the desk said, you should you should probably call home because he'd seen our American passports. And it was like, I don't understand why. I mean, I, don't, I didn't even think, I wasn't even sure that we had left an itinerary that we'd be staying in this hotel. I just couldn't figure out what he was talking about. And we walked into the hotel room and it was, they were picking up Arabic TV from Morocco. Mm. And on the screen, it showed the World Trade Towers and it showed the one falling and then um, the other falling. And then it would go back to a shot of the two of them standing with smoke coming out. And then that shot would stay on for a long time. Um, and then they would go to the clips again. At first, I just thought it was a movie. I couldn't figure out what it was. So we were there and we missed, you know, we missed this massive event. Um, and as a journalist, had I been here, I'd like to think I would have been in somewhere in it, had something to say about it. But we weren't here for it. And it was a really odd uh, experience not to be here for it. And so I think when, when in the aftermath, when everybody started to become very focused, especially journalists, on this story and, and how this story was going to um, unspool, I didn't feel, I couldn't find the, the grip on it or something, mm-hmm. and, except when this John Walker Lind um, got taken. And then I was really, I really understood that. I really felt like I had something to say there. And I thought I could write something um, about that. And in the end, I went and met with his dad. Uh-huh. And I got a sense that this was going to be written blind. Like I wasn't going to get a lot of some of the deep stuff that I really felt like I needed to create the book that I wanted to. And I was really reading um, Tocqueville. I was really thinking about, was this guy, John Walker Lind, big enough as a metaphor to mm-hmm. carry some of these bigger ideas? And I think in the end, I just thought I'm, I wasn't certain and I didn't want to force it. Um, and this, I had already sort of, taken a left off on this dirt path in Spain. <laughs> and so I just, it just felt like a uh, more natural in a way. Cause you know, a lot of times like you'll be talking to an editor and they'll say, well, what do you really want to write? Like what is, yeah. what's on your mind? Um, especially with books. Um, I kept saying, oh yeah, well, what's really on my mind is there's this guy with this piece of cheese. And my editor uh, at first was like, oh God, no, not anything but that, you know, because the Amer- this American audience is not going to be that fascinated by some Spanish cheesemaker. And I was like, yeah, but they will be because this is so much bigger than that. This is just this is just the, the way in. This is just the portal to this much bigger um, book about storytelling and very familiar universal human emotions um, and how they play out. And it's really in the end about happiness, you know, or, or trying to find some modicum of happiness in a world that constantly um, is taking it from you. And that, that sort of certainty with which you obviously successfully convinced your editor to go for it, were you able to maintain that throughout? Like, what is your level of sort of doubt and despair along the road? I mean, it was a long, this book was in process for a very long time. Yeah, it was. And it was, you know, it was really um, constantly interrupted by magazine work. Right. You know, I was, I was, I had just carried a full magazine load through all, all the years that I was writing the book. So um, we also raising a very young family. Um, and my wife 
would would uh, also be traveling at times. So there was a lot. Like we, I felt like we were juggling a lot, and um, I never lost the feeling for the book. I mean, I had definitely had moments like anybody might, where I was just like, "This should not be this hard," you know. And why is this so hard? And what is, what am I really after here? But um, but I think those those moments of despair um were solved in some ways too by the magazine work because I was I wasn't stuck on the magazine work. It, mm-hmm. it was this constant kind of writing that felt loose and a little more free. Um, at some level, it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't use the word easy, but it felt easy to easy to be um, in these uh, worlds that I, I, at least I knew how to try to bring to the page. Um, and so then I turned back to the book and it, it kind of gave me this, this energy to constantly kind of reapproach it and re- question it and then maybe try to solve it at some level. But it's like, you know, it's sort of, it really is like uh, the marathon ends and, and you know, then, the, or the, the elite runners finish and, you know, 2.06. And uh, then, you know, you get the three-hour runners and then the four-hour runners and then somewhere way back on the course is the guy who, you know, is in whatever, hour 12. <laughs> and that, that was this book. I, but I was just like, I'm, there's no doubt I'm going to finish this thing, but it's just not going to be as simple as I thought it was at the beginning. I'm <laughs> not breaking long, a world record here. As long as I keep to my pace, I know I can get <laughs> I can get to the end. <laughs> so this is somewhat back to my uh, my original conceit of these uh, being the same book, your first book and second book, which isn't really true. But your wife, Sarah, is, you know, she is a character in this book. Uh, and she's a character in the first book in a somewhat smaller way, but uh, a large, you know, figure in this book, both sort of like you know, the person who's uh, calling bullshit on you sometimes Mm -hmm. and, you know, the person who's also along on this adventure at various times. And given that she's such an accomplished writer in her own right, how did you feel about being the person that made her a character? Like, does she she say to you, I'm going to make you a character? I haven't, if she comes on the podcast, I'll go read all of her stuff and find out when and where she's done that. But I'm curious what the what the rules are around no, I don't think that. she I don't think she's done a lot of that. And I don't think there are any rules around it. I just think that um in those moments when I've written about her, she is quick to say, like, don't make it really mawkish or don't like I want you to be just honest. Like it's okay. It's okay. You get you need to make it realistic. It's gotta really reflect what those moments felt like. And there were they were some of those moments were tense because she's sitting there having delayed her career sitting in Spain and I and I was out you know riding around in the fields with this guy who was filling me full of a lot of wonderful hot air um, but she saw right through that you know so eventually she she couldn't quite hold her tongue and you know like some of that stuff I really needed to hear and it came as a surprise to me what should have been most obvious was um, that I'd completely kind of gone over I drunk all the Kool-Aid and you know was on my whatever hundredth bottle of wine and um and I think she just was as as a sort of this great steadying influence who does exactly what I do, could think around uh, the corner for me. Uh-huh. Uh, and so she, you know, I think in 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 telling it in the book, it was, it just felt very organic. It wasn't. I didn't try to hold back. Or sometimes it's a little weird, you know. Like sometimes people after the the first book they saw the it's dedicated it's dedicated to sarah mm-hmm. but it wasn't totally clear that we were going to sort of stay together and at so the people, end of the book yeah yeah so people were you know the, people will say oh my god so i'm so glad you guys stayed together 
And that's a little weird because it, you know, it's like that that moment in our life was we were both being pulled out in different directions, and and I think we um, knew that we were going to make a life together. The question was just how are we going to do this? You know, how are we both going to travel and write and stay connected and build a family and build a world? Um, and so the telling room is sort of the answer to that, which is uh, you just do it and then you and then you go on these adventures i mean it's it's a little um like don quixote like you know you have to believe that um you have to exaggerate the world a little bit to go on an adventure and Mm -hmm. you have to exaggerate your sense of purpose in order to do it you know she supports all of these ridiculous boondoggles um that i occasionally take us on and i support uh, her in the same way yeah yeah and it does it does it feels like the the books put together are, or and individually as well, are the stories of a relationship. They are this. They are about this relationship. And there was this one moment, which I admittedly, it only I only caught it when I went back and I was rereading Driving Mr. Albert. But in the telling room, you talk about this like group of friends that she has. I feel like this is I'm like invading yeah. your privacy, but you did write these in the book. Yeah, yeah no, you no. Talk about this group of friends she has, and they have like identical fish, fish tattoos. tattoos. Yeah. Which is also at the beginning of Driving Mr. Albert. You talk about this group of friends and the fish tattoos. Yeah. And it felt like this sort of like pulling you from, you know, the person who was sort of uncertain about where this relationship is going right. to now the person in, you know, the marriage with the kids. And right. it just was, it, it felt, I, it caused me to look at the books a different way, sort of when I caught that. Right. That I mean, detail. I think there's like this archaeology or something about life as you continue to live it and so you know in some earlier incarnation of myself i looked at her friends not knowing them as well as i do now i sort of um saw them as her friends and now they're now like in my life too so they become part of the archaeology of that book you know in this this sort of deeper way and in fact it's in a footnote it's like sort of part of the sediment of the book too you know it's like you build your life on on all these you know friendships and stories and mythologies and you know part of trying to um live as a writer is you're constantly asking yourself what's the truth here what's the truth here or even what's the the my truth here is more accurate like what is my truth here what am what am i willing to believe and so you know part of writing about family is really just saying like this is actually the thing i most believe in i mean that's what drew me to Ambrosio. It was just this incredible family of his and and this feeling that he had when he made this cheese that he was, that cheese carried the memory of all of these Molinas that had come before who'd made this cheese. And this was part of um, like his purpose or mission on earth. And it was so small and in some ways it was so absurd, like you're just making some cheese. Uh, But he took it so seriously and it it connected him so completely to his past um, that you know, I obviously became obsessed with it and started thinking about that in my own life, like my own past and who who are the people that I'm connected with. And some of those people pop up in the book. And and I have to point out that the other thing that I struck me was you. So you have this cheese that this man, you know, this sort of like uh, organic but inert item that uh, this man is obsessed with, and it's it's changed the course of his life. And in Driving Mr. Albert, you have this brain. Albert Einstein's brain, this organic but now inert object that all of these things are projected upon to, for a character who right. it's changed the course of his life. It seemed they seemed like the same type of fable almost. Yeah. Yeah. There's like this sort of, I don't know if it's like 
the MacGuffin or the Maltese Falcon or there's some there's something about like following the object. I think it's the MacGuffin. Yeah. It's like the way into um, sort of beginning to tell a story that's gonna explode into something much bigger. Like I do like that sort of sneaky way of storytelling. Like the sort of the Trojan horse comes in and okay, I sort of know what that is, and then but meanwhile you're infiltrating and you're you're spreading. Uh, and opening the story out, and then you begin to realize that you're going somewhere really different or interesting, and you didn't quite know you were going to go there. Um, yeah. I think that sometimes in magazine stories is really, um, I, I enjoy reading those stories a lot. Like when someone pulls it off, it feels like a little bit of sleight of hand or magic that that keeps me really tuned um, to a story. Like when someone's a little bit idiosyncratic or the, their mind makes a leap that I wouldn't have thought was even logical, um, you know, that to me is really intriguing. And so if you have, if you do have, say, a piece of cheese or Einstein's brain and someone lets you in and like, it becomes an easy way to to create something like a arc, story arc. Um, but from there, you're pretty much free to go anywhere. And so like in the telling room, the book op- opens up into many other things in the end you know and it's it it becomes much deeper uh hopefully if it works for people um than just this one tale told on a night you know in august the year 2000 right right so you talk in the book about uh having gone to grad school and the sort of frustrations of you know wanting to be like a short story writer fiction writer and sort of everyone casting their stories into the abyss and getting rejections and things like that but so but do you feel like that that training actually has influenced the way you approach your writing, like the fact that you went and 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 got was an MFA. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, completely. I don't see it as being all that different. I mean, I don't feel like I I given up on one to do the other. It just is part of the writing project. I just the the even the term nonfiction just isn't doesn't seem very. Um, it seems so flimsy. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like not fiction i like to think of it like when your editor says oh go get a story they don't go get some non-fiction they don't ever say that they're not like go get me something that's not fiction you know it's like it's pretty like basic you're trying to tell a story and some i've read novels that are basically memoirs um that were amazing and i read memoirs that called themselves memoirs that were amazing and i you know i read stories that are non-fiction that seem like they can't be non-fiction like there's no possible way this is nonfiction, and I've read fiction, feels very quotidian and maybe almost stultifyingly boring, and it feels so realistic that you're, you know, brings you down or it, you know, so I just I don't like I think all those lines are better scumbled. Like I just don't see it in that sharp, sort of defined way. You can't use. Um, made up dialogue and not I mean there's some basic rules that you have to adhere to um, and this idea of like creative nonfiction I, I sometimes find the terminology problematic because I think especially people when they begin think oh well, that means I get you know I get to be creative when in fact you know I think all your decisions get driven by the story as it presents itself to you so you know what point of view you're going to take what key you're going to tell it in all those things sort of come in the reporting and the thinking about it. I don't I don't think, you know, you go in thinking, um, this is it's time for me to, you know, turn on the Hunter S. Thompson after jets here and we'll just, you know, just no matter what, this is what it's gonna be and um or this is my moment to go Faulknerian on some 
long nonfiction piece that in the end no one would probably be able to read if you really did that, you know. So, But if it's suggested by the material and you can intimate or reflect or inflect some of that stuff, you know, it becomes richer. I feel like your magazine work, it varies stylistically a, a good bit in terms of, you know, I was reading rereading the... Um, the man who sailed his house, the tsunami mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that story is entirely second person, but the second person that you're writing to is actually him. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not you, the audience. Right. And that really struck me as a as a sort of technique that only a certain story can possibly require that or call for that. Right. And if you're reporting that story and you spend five days uh, with Hiromitsu in Tokyo and then up the coast uh, to, in his decimated village, um, you begin to realize that he can't say much about what has happened to him. Mm-hmm. But he's saying it all in fragments, and you're just collecting all the fragments. And um, on that piece in particular, when we took the train back to Tokyo, the last, literally the last hour and a half I was with him, he said, I don't know, he just kind of said it all. But again, in a very fragmented way. Not and in when, a quotable way. Not entirely quotable, but he he went into this deep, some of these deeper feelings that he had been really fighting against and really felt was it, it was inappropriate for him to step out and distinguish himself by telling his own story. It was just there were all these cultural prohibitions against doing that. But so once I, I went back and I looked at all the notes and stuff, I realized that I, there was only really one person I was gonna. T- I was trying to tell the story to, and it was him, just to tell him what had happened to him, using his all his own stuff. You know everything he'd given me, so he would have a narrative. You mentioned being an editor. Um, how did you go from sort of MFA in fiction, trying to figure that out, thinking I'm gonna write short stories, to to becoming an editor and moving into the world of professional journalism? How did that transition happen? Yeah, I was so I was in um, this class uh, taught by. Um, a fiction writer, Charlie Baxter, who's incredible. Great, great. This was at Michigan? Yeah. yeah. Great short story writer, great novelist, and great human being. And he suggested me for a job at this old fiction journal called Story Magazine. So I went down there, and I was like um, the managing editor. Uh, and it was really just myself and and the woman who ran Story Magazine. Um, and we had a couple of assistants so I did a lot of editing of short fiction. I worked with a lot of really great writers. Um, Philip Gravich was one of them at the time who, who uh, I got to work with. But really some of the some of the best fiction writers in America. We ran some of the first Juno Diaz stories, and it was really cool. Um, but I realized that I, I was missing the real world in some ways. I mean, it was a complete education to get to do that. But um, my friend who I'd gone to undergrad with, Will Dana, was um, – at Outside Magazine, and so I had talked to him at one point, and we'd been talking, you know, through the years, but I talked to him at one point, and I was just like, it'd be really interesting to do some of what you're doing, and he said, well, if you're really interested, then, you know, maybe we're kind of looking for somebody, maybe send send something to me, I can't guarantee it, but I'll bring it to the editor, and so that opened a little um, crack in the door, and then I, I ended up at Outside. Well, who's the editor then? Was it Mark? Um, that was Mark Bryant. That was a real outside heyday. I feel like. That, yeah, it was. Inc- it was time. great. He's just a writer's editor, you know. So he was an incredible guy to get to to learn under, and yeah. So so that that place was became sort of this great training ground for all this writing that came later. 
that feels like somewhat of the era that's described in Driving Mr. Albert, where you you went to do that, but then maybe felt a little a little lost in the wilderness trying to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that anytime you go from being like at the center of this, you know, the, the nervous system, like you're an editor and the phone is ringing, there are ideas, you're meeting with writers. It's like, it's, it's very fertile um, and it's incredible. Like there's this just complete effervescence and, and uh, you walk away from it and what, you know, the first thing you notice is it's like, it's pretty quiet, you know, and, the phone's ringing a little bit, but it's not like people calling up with ideas for <laughs> right. you to pitch to somebody. Well, so you have to generate all of those return phone yeah. calls somehow. Yeah. So I think I mean I think that's where a lot of you know freelance careers bog down. It's right at the beginning because you're not getting, you can't get any sort of cash flow working, and you know it's hard. Those first two to four years can be pretty brutal. But yeah, that for, for me the first year out was I did. Um, I did the piece for Esquire. Mm-hmm. I did Driving Mr. Albert for Harper's. And um, then I was able to convert that into a book. So the, the, it began to get going, but we were in Western Maine. We'd moved up from Santa Fe to Western Maine. So it was we were sort of in the woods anyway. <laughs> so it got, it got a little quiet. <laughs> so when you settle into magazine work, obviously your work is, is very eclectic. Uh, it's always sort of a difficult question to ask people, like how do you find your ideas and that sort of thing. But... Um, but I was particularly interested just gravitating towards some of the stories that I really liked. And there, there's a number of them, like the guy who's stuck in the airport. Oh yeah. The 15 year layover. Yeah. The 15 year layover. But that, and a couple of other stories were things that, uh, they seem like they were known. Uh, you'd read about that guy on the internet or something. Mm-hmm. And similarly, the guy in China, who's like sort of saving people from mm-hmm. suicide, suicide bridge, that yeah. exists. How do you feel out the threshold between something that you feel is out there and people might know about it. And so, and then you say, actually, I can go find, I can get something more than what people know is there. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, some of it's really just a feeling, you know, or I can't stop thinking about that guy mm-hmm. or I can't stop thinking about that situation. This story list of mine is just an ongoing document or documents. It's I have different ones in some different places and <laughs> and... I have ideas from the very beginning that are still on that list, you know, that I think would be great stories, but they haven't totally insisted themselves or something. Do you put on that list conceptual stories like a man who's lost his wife or something, you know, something like an idea that you're looking for the characters, the real people to show up, or are they mostly sort of like, uh, you know, a guy who saves people from suicide on a bridge in China and you're sort of... Oftentimes it's more specific, but it's caught my attention because I feel like maybe that character's big enough to to be metaphoric. You know, that there's something in it that's going to be bigger or that there's some way to tell something bigger through that person. I mean, right, some of them are just random. Um, I remember way back at the beginning, I really didn't, uh, I had no interest in doing celebrity. Uh-huh. And until the last, you know, year, I really have never done celebrity. Um, and in the last year, I've done two celebrity profiles that have been really fun. Like, I think I'm totally um, old enough or something to appreciate what that dynamic is. Um, and did they bring those to you or did you, were the, did you say, these are the ones? I, I didn't bring them, but I but I was in conversation. I said, I'm not opposed to doing something celebrity related at this point. I've, I think, you know, I've been doing this a while and I've made my point with myself. So I'm open to, I'm open to it. Um, 
but it, but before it, it was like a personal credo or something. I was like, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. I have no interest in it. I'm interested in underdogs and, and normal people and people who have been acted upon by huge forces of history or nature or whatever. And I want to see how these cataclysmic events change a life and how people find a way to piece lives back together. I mean, there was a lot of that in the early going. Yeah, that seems like a consistent theme even up to the village that wins the lottery, like yeah. these sort of ordinary or classic, like ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, but they've sort of like been thrust into this world and it's yeah. kind of how do they confront it? Yeah, it's just so interesting just to, to take people in this pressurized moment, whether it's like pressurized joy or pressurized tragedy. Um, I mean, early on I did I did do a Yankee, uh, New York Yankee story. I, did, I wrote about Thurman Munson, but yeah. Thurman Munson was like my childhood hero. And so that was cool because I did get to go out and meet all these old Yankees and hang out at Yankee Stadium. Like that was about as close to celebrity I think as I'd gotten. And that was pretty cool. But um, but I needed like that was a story I was I needed to tell. It took a long time to convince anybody to let me write about Thurman months, and there was just no reason to write about that guy. <laughs> he had been dead for for a while. Yeah, he died in a plane crash in eighty one or whatever. Um, How did you convince someone to let you write about Thurman Munson? I just couldn't stop thinking about it, and so I, every time we talked about stories, I was like, you know, my first story is Thurman Munson. You know, this is the one I want to do. You know, I think I think it was trying to just convince people that um, that it's worthwhile. So the whole and the whole lead to that story is basically written to anyone who thinks it's not worthwhile. Here's why you need to recognize the greatness of of this guy who had a kind of average greatness. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't Ted Williams, but he stood for something for me and for a lot of Yankee fans. And so it was eventually, I, I don't know, eventually I was able to just kind of explain how I thought the story could look on the page and that maybe maybe that turned some minds to it. What it really came down to that center of the story was was kind of rehabilitating or recreating um, or revisiting Thurman Munson at, in his prime and connecting him to his family and, and then also connecting myself as a boy who was sort of a blind Yankee fan um, hearing about the day he died, you know, which for me was like that was my JFK assassination, you know, and everybody's got their own version of that. So, and the only way that story works is if you put it out there in in that very open first person and you tell it like that. The familiar thing is that we all have someone like that. It might not be Thurman Munson, you know, but some some sort of problematic hero from the past who <laughs> stood for something and marked some moment of change for you. And so th- those currents in the story had to be I think strong enough to carry somebody into it who might not care about baseball or care about the Yankees or care about him. And and there you 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 wrote about, you know, your childhood and your sort of love of this this character, this this you know, professional baseball player and also your your friends and the way you played baseball. And so that's that's sort of looking back on your your own childhood and then you have you drop into these stories in different places. Do you feel like it's always you? Like you mentioned earlier, you know, people coming up to you and saying like, oh, I'm glad that it worked out with your wife. Like, do you feel like people should know you if they, I mean, it might be a little crazy if they like me just read like everything you've ever written, but that at the end of it all, that's you or that's, that's a version of you that's actually separate. That's a little more bumbling or a little more, you know, a little more trying to elicit the story Mm -hmm. than you would be in your, in your normal life. That's a good question because I, 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 
by the sheer fact that you're writing it down, there's something performative in it. And so you, you're and you're creating a persona. But that said, I'm not really over exaggerating too much. I don't I don't turn myself into like a bumbling character in stories. I mean, I'm on this like in in the story about the suicide bridge. I was on the bridge. You know, I was there when someone tried to kill themselves. You I, stopped someone, right? I, we got into like a little tussle on the bridge, and and uh, originally I wasn't going to write about any of that. I just didn't. I just didn't think it should be in there because I just thought it was seemed so improbable. But then, then it just seemed when I wrote the piece, when I got to that place in the piece near the end, it seemed incredibly vital to actually put it put it in there. So, but that that person on the bridge that that's all pretty honest. It's like I think it accurately reflects the moment and my bewilderment and sort of existential nausea and all this other stuff. It was just a very crazy, confusing moment. And then Mr. Chen, the suicide catcher who stops these people from jumping from the bridge showed up and his reaction to it was both crazy and comical. And in life, the best moments are the ones that are full of all of this pathos and humor and all of it working in a complicated, confusing way. And you know, when you go to write it, you try to sort it all out. You try to you try to make it more logical. But um, but the person in the stories is just it is me. I mean, it's completely me. And even when I'm not in there, like with the plane crash story, you live with these things. You, I mean, that's all I thought about for months. You know, so and I was asking all those questions that get asked in the story. Yeah, the father in that story. Did you have kids at the time that you wrote that story? Yeah, I think we had two kids, or we had one and one on the way. And we'd been on a plane uh, during the writing of that. We took a plane to Dallas, and um, something went wrong on the flight. We lost an engine or something. And um, when we landed, they asked us to go into the crouch. And the guy next to us kind of like put his arms around us. And I had this reaction because I'd already seen all the evidence of what happens when a plane crashes, Uh where I, I just sat straight up in the seat, and I just looked out the window. I was like, if I, if, it's, if this is it, I want to see it. But I think that, you know, sort of metaphorically, there's a, there's that impulse in a lot of journals. Like, it's just, I want to I want to see it, whatever it is, if it's war, if it's suffering, if it's complete unbridled elation. Like, I just want to see what that looks like. I want to smell it. I want to taste it. I want to think about it. I want to be caught up in it. And not to take that down to, like, a purely logistical level, but it is really interesting, and it comes up in the telling room, you know, the fact that you, that your wife, Sarah, is also a journalist who goes and does these same type of stories, you know, all over the world, uh, witnessing all sorts of tragedy and, and amazing characters and everything else. And just how do you actually balance that? I mean, a person could say that there's a recipe for disaster and two people <laughs> pursuing the same job and yeah. could get really competitive. It could be a nightmare. Not to mention the, the sort of pull of one person needing to go away yeah. a lot. I'm just curious... Not to pry, but just no, no, sort I of think how do you how do you actually manage that? I mean, that's a great question because I think we're asking that all the time. But you know, like the, we met in grad school, um, and so we've known each other as writers from the beginning. And um, I love what she does. I love the work she does, and I love supporting that. Like I love being with our kids when she's on the road. You know, and I like the idea too that whatever she finds out there, she brings back to us. Um, and we get to hear those stories, and that's part of what we model for our kids, that the world isn't that scary, that those people, you know, 
who are in uh, China on that bridge or those people who are in Somalia, um, you know, they share a lot of the same concerns that, that we share in our in our little house in Portland, Maine. And the other part of it with us is I just think we've figured out over the years just how um, to work efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are moments where it feels completely out of control. There are moments where we despair, like, why, you know, why wasn't one of us a doctor or something, you <laughs> right. know, like... Or a lot of times we'll like say what we what we both need right now is like one of those old fashioned nineteen fifties housewives, you know, just living with us who just takes care of all the stuff that because sometimes it does feel really crazy. But no, and she's like my partner in crime. So in a lot of what I'm writing, I'm looking for her reaction. I'm wondering what she makes of it. And I think, you know, somewhere in there she when she's writing, she's she's interested too, you know. And what it's sort of, I know you think of maybe certain people that you're writing for. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I do that as much, like specifically, but I do know what it what it means to be able to take a draft and give it to her, and the constructive things she will say in the name of making it better. And there's never any tension around that. I don't feel it, you know. I'm 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 open to it. I want it. I think sometimes we say, oh, I could go do this on this date and somebody else says, but I, I was going to go here and do that. You know, that's the big, <laughs> that's the big negotiation. And do you have any, um, I know you have this collection, you said you're working on a collection. Of, yeah. Is it a collection of magazine pieces, presumably? Right. It's coming out in a year and it's a collection of stories. Yeah. it's it, Some of the stories are more narrative essays. Some of, some of the stories I've written just have a little bit of that in it. So, um, And do you have another big book project in mind? Are you content doing, like, settling back into magazine stuff for a while? Or I guess you're doing it all along. I have something that I'm trying to f- work on and figure out. Um, so I'm doing a lot of reading, but I don't want to jinx it completely yeah. because I've already, I already had another thing that I was working on that I sort of just, I think I just gave up on. So it's just one of these moments where you kind of have a little bit of time to decide, but then you can't take too much more time because nothing will ever get done. You know, I could be sitting here staring at my belly button three years from now. I just, you know, at this point, it's, it would be nice to just kick out some some books. <laughs> I don't want to become overly concerned about if there's a story. I just have to trust that there there will be a story because you're going to find the story uh, somewhere in there. And that's true of every book project. You start with just enough detail, but you haven't gone all the way yet in the reporting. Um, I mean, the ones that get sold off of proposals or... Um, off of magazine articles. You, what you're really saying is, I think there's a, this great promise of more here, and uh, you just have to trust me in the end. Yeah, but also your last book, I guess, would be, it could be evidence cutting in, in either direction that you should jump on it and yeah, just exactly. get it done, or that, hey, there's there's all the time in the world, right? and eventually the marathoner, yeah. you'll, you'll cross the finish line. You yeah, know? battered and bloody. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming. Oh, man. Really thanks for having it. me. I've been looking Such forward to this for a long time. Come. Yeah, thanks. So the one thing that you have to do is you have to make sure that Sarah will come on. Oh, I, she'll be here tomorrow if okay, you guys want. She's good. your biggest fan. That's She's one of our most requested guests. So That's awesome. Next time she's in New York. Cool. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Long Form Podcast. That's our show for this week. I really appreciate Mike Paterniti coming into the studio while he was in New York. Uh, and thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, long form. Thanks very much to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and to our intern, Sarah Button. And of course, our sponsors, 
tiny letter and out of his books check out the new out of his book uh, at com. and we will see you next week Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.